0: Welcome to the Morn Report. Hey there, Fort Stewart. It's Kevin Larson from the Fort Stewart Public Affairs Office with this week's edition of the Morn Report, and I'm joined by James Atwater, the director of the Third Division Museum on Fort Stewart, and he's going to tell us why 14 July 1918 is an important date. James, welcome to the show. Hi. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Uh,
1: the reason it's so important is it's kicked off one of the most important uh, battles for the division during World War I. Uh, this division has three great defensive actions, and the second battle of the Marne is the most important of those three, at least for World War One, is concerning. Uh, the uh, other two would be Anzio during World War Two, and the third is the Korean War, when we uh, defended the last port in North Korea, so it was 10th Corps can properly exfil, along with about 90,000 North Korean refugees after the Chinese entered the invasion.
0: Uh, Some pretty heavy stuff, pretty important history. So back to World War I, July 14th. Uh, basically what happens. Uh,
1: is uh, we were holding an eight mile defensive perimeter along the Marne River. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the French division to our right. Uh, the Germans plan- were planning a massive invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trying to punch through. Uh, the war had been dragging on. We entered the war late, though we entered the war in uh, 1917 officially. US combat troops don't hit the front line until uh, 1918. Uh, the war had been raging since 1914. The right. British, the French, they're exhausted. Um, we, we were fresh manpower in, uh, and the Germans, they wanted to punch through and grab Paris. They're hoping that they can capture Paris. Uh, the French would collapse. Uh, the French army had already mutinied once during the war Really? over offensive operations. Wow. World uh, War One is a meat grinder. Machine guns and artillery were, God, it was a defensive war. Mm-hmm. While tanks were created for World War One. the truth of the matter is, uh, they didn't they didn't provide what? they were hoping for. They were just technically complex. Uh, they were hoping to be be able to punch through and allow mat, uh, rapid movement. Right. Um, but, you know, they were new technology and uh, they had their issues. But uh, it was a beginning step. Uh, but, yeah, well, the French r- revolt, basically they were tired of costly offensive operations. Mm-hmm. That was not say that they, you know, if the Germans had tried to run when they that revolt was happening. The defensive operations, that's an entirely different operations. Mm-hmm. I think the Germans tried to push when that happened, they would have stood their ground. Uh, but again, it was a massive casualty. Some of the campaigns that took place before we entered the war, uh, by the time the campaigns were done, when you add the casualties to both sides, you're talking over a million soldiers, all combined. All right. uh, so it was a, uh, uh, a massively high casualty war.
0: Um, um, true, so you've got the French on other side of our one flank,
1: yes. Um, They hit both the French and uh, the 38th and the 30th regiments of the 3rd uh, Division. Uh, Third, the 30th Infantry Regiment, kind of over the course of the assault, would bend back. Mm -hmm. Uh, The French Division would fall back and leave the flank. The 30th, 8th uh, Regiment would actually send up the river and hold the ground. but it started off actually on the 14th. It was near midnight. We actually knew they were coming, so we started our artillery barrage. Mm-hmm. It was actually after midnight, of the 15th, that the French, that the Germans responded. Uh, they at that time of World War One, you know, they were used to technology and difference. But that time, uh, you had to send patrols across the river to try to capture information, and uh, we're fortunate that uh, one of those patrols turned up information that we've. Could find enough information that we knew the Germans were coming at us, uh, and we could prepare a defensive action. And the idea of preparatory bombardment for them is to try to catch their assault op- forces out in the open. Mm-hmm. Uh, some some German units were caught in the open in that barrage, but it actually begins an artillery barrage back and forth between uh, our forces and the Germans, and it was a mixture of high explosive and chemical warfare.
0: And Gas and chlorine. And this was at Chateau Thierry on the Marne River where this was all happening? Uh,
1: down the river from the Chateau, but yeah, the, on the Marne. It was on the Marne River. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, at it began. It was a tough fight, um, but fortunately, they had to cross a river. And uh, the it was heavy. Now, the problem is the communications mm-hmm. at that time. Radios existed, but mm-hmm. they were too fragile for the front line. Mm-hmm. So the front line commanders had to uh, communicate back with the battalions and with the brigade headquarters via either hard line or runners. But the problem with that heavy artillery barrage is the hard lines were cut. Mm-hmm. So then it was down to runners. But in that t- artillery barrage, uh, runners got lost, got mm-hmm. killed, got wounded. Uh, the terrain changed. Right. Uh, and it was... It, so you had to deal with that, and because it was chemical warfare, soldiers had to put their masks on, right. and they were wearing their masks for the entire time. So right. They weren't the best masks to see out
0: of. Right, when it's your field of vision, you're running around through pockmarked landscape, trenches, barbed wire, yeah. wood, shrapnel, just chaos everywhere. So, uh, yeah, that that's um, truly, like you said, a meat grinder in World War One.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, you take soldiers, through, and you look at the gas mask. Modern soldiers had full... Total head covers for gas. Back then, it was literally a mask. So, actually, the rear line commanders had to keep in mind of getting reinforcements up so they can pull the frontline soldiers off to get them out of their clothes mm-hmm. because they were contaminated with gas and chlor- chlorine. Uh, chlorine and mustard were the two most common
0: gases used. Yeah. So, here's the 3rd Infantry Division in the thick of it, facing these new technologies, gas warfare, large-caliber artillery rounds, air warfare, all these things. And in the face of that, they stand fast, and ever since then, they've been known as the rock of the Marne.
1: Uh, yeah, it, and one important thing about the battle is the communications broke down because mm-hmm. of the artillery barrage. Decisions made that helped win the battle for the Americans and fight off, and this was, you're talking hours of constant combat. Uh, it was decisions made by the frontline commander. You're talking to captains, it's, you're talking about senior NCOs, you're talking to your captains, lieutenants are making decisions that help win this war. So it's important to understand when you try to train your soldiers, mm-hmm. it's important to understand how important it is to have soldiers, seniors enlisted and officers on the front line, be knowledgeable enough and capable enough to make decisions because they can't wait for somebody who's cut off from the rear to come down and, because there's no satellite coverage, there's no satellite phones. Uh, Yes, you have air warfare in the early stages, um, uh, but still it it is a fully on the ground full combat and it's up to the individual soldiers. And so that's one of the real testaments to the second battle of the Marne and to the soldiers that sit on the front end is they made the decisions on the front line that helped stop the assault of the Germans coming across the river.
0: So individual unit and leadership initiative is yeah. what stemmed the flow of the Germans. Yeah, and the
1: uh, Captain Jesse Woldridge was key in the middle of that. Mm. When he, that assault started, his company had almost 260 men. Mm. And by the time it was done, he had 60 men,
0: wow. less than 60 men. Wow. And still combat effective. We're well, still me. fighting
1: right at, you know, until the Germans finally fell, fell back. Yeah.
0: Wow. Fantastic that truly is indicative of the legacy of the 3rd Infantry Division. And, you know, as part of that, becoming the rock of the Marne, you know, in the midst of that battle, the commanding general is said to have said to his French counterparts, nous resterons là, which of course means, you know, we shall remain, yeah. right? So so did that, is, that, is, that's, not just, that's not just rumor. He actually did say that, didn't he? Off the top of my head, I can't tell you yes or no. Um, my other coworker, john potter actually
1: is far more knowledgeable on this mm-hmm. uh, and whether or not he said that or not so i'm not going to say yes or no mm-hmm. but uh, it is very possible that was said uh, but sometimes okay. myths become legends and
0: true mm-hmm. and, and history is written by the victors and most, most, of the the time, <laughs> <laughs> most of the time most of the time so as part of that history legacy this is when the third id patch is created too Correct. The, the famous blue with the three white stripes. Correct. And this campaign, the Ain Marne Offensive, is one of those campaigns that's represented by the three lines, and the other two are?
1: Well, three lines are actually the offensive operations, ah. uh, not the defensive operations. And the funny thing about it is one of the offensive operations we're on, we're only the reserves. Hmm. Um, we didn't actually get called up, but we were we were slated as a reserve organization to be activated, mm-hmm. and uh, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are the three offensive operations, and also we were the third division. Uh, during World mm-hmm. War One, all the divisions were known as first division, second division, because every division deployed was an infantry division. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't until World War Two where you started seeing the specialized monikers, infantry, armor, cavalry, mountain divisions to show up. After this brief message and
0: short break, we'll be right back. Are you looking for more places to get your news? Subscribe to the Fort Stewart Hunter Army Airfield YouTube channel. As we add to this platform throughout the year, users will have access to installation tours, news updates, and plenty of motivating videos featuring 3ID soldiers and more. Visit youtube.com and search Fort Stewart Hunter Army Airfield. And we're back. We've already kind of touched on it a little bit. The the initiative sh- shown by you know the soldiers that are in close contact with the enemy, communications are broken down. They have to make decisions. How does this historic event back in World War One? How does that contribute to what the Third Infantry Division that was once known as the Third Division? How does that contribute to their legacy of who they are today, what they do today? um it's about leading from the front uh being able to make decisions in the combat
1: zone this division has a long history of leading from the front i mean even the operations in iraq uh you know you're talking about we were the spearhead out of kuwait for one of the two assault columns uh we were the division that did the two assaults into baghdad uh, with the second one being uh, the seizure of the palaces which effectively ended the first phase of operations Mm -hmm. in iraq uh, so that comes to an important point. It's also important that the frontline commanders are able to make decisions uh, effectively. Uh, to, you know, okay, we're on the ground, things are changing with the fluidity of the battlefield. Yeah, even though you have communications that you can sit there and talk to people back in the Pentagon, the frontline commanders, it's so important for them to be able to make decisions without having people nitpick and say, okay, I see this going on, no one else sees it, I got to adjust what I'm doing to deal with this type of operations on a hurry.
0: So okay. is there anything else you'd like to add about the third infantry division's history to close out the show?
1: <laughs> uh, the division has very really long and uh, that you know, you could spend days talking about the third division history. And then if you want to go back into some of the regiments with the divisions and their history, it's like the seventh it goes all the way back to the War of eighteen twelve. Mm-hmm. Uh, which Cotton Balers by God. Yeah. Uh, even though they started as the 8th infantry now, or the 7th. Uh, but, you know, you're talking about a long and dedicated history of really what looking into it. Uh, it's find it interesting, though, in a lot of people focus on the war. But for 38 years, we we stood at this doorstep, especially with the going to Ukraine. Uh, 38 years, this division was at the front line in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't expected. Our job was to slow the Soviets when they came through the Volga Gap. Yep. Long enough for the follow-on forces from the United States to come in. Uh so now it gets overlooked and it shouldn't. Uh, you know, they didn't deploy to Vietnam, but they still they still stood there. They did. It was a sentinel. So, you know, most people, you know, getting Germany, hey, that's great. By the way, if the Soviets do come, <laughs> guess, guess what? That. Yeah, you're 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 on the front line and you're not expected to survive.
0: That's that's what Reforger was for.
1: Yeah. Redeploying forces Germany. And a lot of times we played op four for that. Um, and unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of good books written. I've been looking for a lot of good sources and you know secondary books from Germany. There's not a lot of them good out of there. Sure. What I've been finding actually is from a German uh, model kind of they create books that are about I don't know, sixty pages long. Mm-hmm. The company's called Tankograd, and mm-hmm. it's both English and American, and geared <laughs> more towards models, but they do talk. You know, they focus on. A lot of American activities during the Cold War, mm-hmm. and sometimes they bring up the third i d and they got good photographs of you know vehicles and equipment, how they were painted mark and talking about that so i've been the I've been buying those when mm-hmm. I can uh just to help brush up on that time period as well
0: that is a fascinating topic close to my heart because i I spend many an hour painting little model tanks, and I often wish that decals and model kits reflected. I don't know, 3rd ID or 1st Armored or 3rd Armored even, because you know, these these were units that are near and dear to my heart because my dad was part of 3rd ID in Germany when I was little and then 1st Armored and then, well, 3rd Armored and then 1st Armored. So, yes, there is a lack of source material out there to really see how tanks, M60s, were painted back during the Cold War and then M1s. and. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, well, there. The one the thing about this company is that there was a really fun time in Europe in the 70s and 80s where they were experimenting with different camouflage patterns, mm-hmm. not just the four pattern, but there was an early digital, there was also dual
0: I think it was called, and seventh cav was the ones who tested it out. Yes,
1: yeah, and actually, uh, you know, third ID had some vehicles painted in one. There was a really dual master. Murdock, which became common before mm-hmm. the third camouflage and actually that tanker guy company actually published a book on it hmm. and so i saw that and i bought it and i said hey that's a that's a that's a cool topic
0: that is fascinating i do like i do like talking about camouflage and and you're saying there's a third id vehicle that was painted in the i, I don't remember it's dual tech or master mm-hmm. uh, um, but i've been master because yeah. I did see something like the Rogue Runner, some M60 painted with that. Yeah, this was a uh, forerunner of Murdoch. It's over in my office,
1: but uh, if you ever have a chance, uh, come by and take a look at it. Sounds good. And then a uh, plug for
0: the museum, since we're talking the museum, you're back open for public visits. Yeah. What are your hours?
1: Uh, we're from 9 to 4 o'clock, Tuesday through Friday. Uh, every first Saturday of the m- month is also open. Uh, unfortunately, with a staff of two. Uh, we're limited on the ability to open up on weekends. But uh, if you have any questions, feel free to come by, ask us, call us. Uh, if you're military, uh, look up on the Global, James Atwater. I'm on there, and my the other co-worker is John Potter. Uh, he's also on there. We'll be more than happy to field
0: questions. Sounds great. Well, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you about World War One history of the 3rd Division and then touching a little bit on the Cold War, and then making a plug for the museum here on Fort Stewart. Anything else you want to close out with? No,
1: I'd just like to thank you for the opportunity to speak, and uh, I hope you and everyone else enjoy your
0: weekend. Sounds good. Well, folks, that's it for this edition of the Marne Report. Join us again when we talk about other fun topics that relate to Fort Stewart, Hunter Army Airfield, and the 3rd Infantry Division, Rock of the Marne. See you guys on the airwaves next time. Are you a civilian, spouse, or family member who is interested in working for the Army? Check out the Army Fellows Program. This two-year program allows you to experience the work environment of the Department of Defense while blending work assignments and developmental opportunities that will help you grow into an Army civilian professional with eligibility for permanent placement across the Army. For more information, visit portal.chra.army.mil.